From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, Benjamin Ensor. I'm here in the studio, having said goodbye to this week's guests following a really great show. We're getting to grips with some of the biggest stories of the week, including US banks plan a payment wallet to compete with PayPal and Apple Pay. And our conclusion is this might have worked best if they'd done it 10 years ago. But maybe there's some opportunity to find a few niches uh, in the American market who are not well served today and find an opportunity to actually make the wallet a success, as Early Warning Services has done with Zelle. Our next story is that Nova Credit has become the UK's first cross-border credit reference provider, doing fantastic work helping people bring their credit histories from other countries to the UK so that they can apply for credit products like credit cards or loans or or mortgages, which is the source of huge frustration to very well-qualified, credit-worthy people who move countries and suddenly find they can't borrow because they're not in that national country's systems. And then our third story was Islamic finance player Wahed Invest opening a UK branch. Although, as we actually discovered, it's really a hybrid working space, which is much more 2023, as it brings its Islamic products to the UK's 3.9 million Muslims. So super exciting, bringing new products uh, to the market. So we get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Heads up, people. We've got a brand spanking new report dropping very soon. The 11FS Pulse Report 2023 will officially land later this month. What were the best fintech user journeys of 2022? Which UX trends are set to take the new year by storm? All of this will be answered and more with winning insights from our 11FS Pulse team experts and global industry leaders. Go to info.11fs.com slash pulse-report to download and to find out more. That's info.11fs.com slash pulse dash report. We can't wait to share what we've been working on. Hello and welcome LFG people to Fintech Insider. Blockchain Insider. 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome to episode 700 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. First of all, I'm joined by my 11FS co-host, Amy Gavin, who is a strategy lead at 11FS. Welcome, Amy. Are you working on anything interesting that you can tell us about without sharing client names, obviously? Of course. Hi, Benjamin. Um, Yeah, so at the moment, we're working with a client um, to understand the global API landscape um, and digging into specific use cases for payment APIs and how these can be monetized. So super interesting. I bet you're finding quite a few use cases. Too many use cases, (laughs) if anything. (laughs) Fantastic. We also have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Colin Galster, who is Head of International at Nova Credit. Welcome back to the show, Colin. We've got your news coming up in a moment, but what can you tell our listeners about your role at uh, Nova Credit? 
Yeah, hi, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my role at Nova Credit uh, has evolved quite a bit. So I, I began with the company at the very beginning. I'm a member of the founding team and have held a few different roles uh, since 2016 when the company was founded. I presently am the head of international, which means I'm responsible for business operations and growth outside the United States for the company. Fantastic. Well, welcome back. And then I'm delighted that our next guest is making a FinTech Insider debut. So welcome to uh, FinTech Insider for the first time, Uma Suleiman, Global Head of Risk at Wahed Invest. Welcome so much. We, again, we've got your news coming up, but can you, can you give us the top line on uh, Wahed Invest, please? Hi, thank you. And it's great to be here. Uh, so Wahed Invest essentially, uh, well, Wahed as it's now known, is a, uh, a one-stop shop for all things money related. Uh, that's anchored within principles related to Sharia compliance, as well as ethical principles. So we give people the ability to invest uh, in a wholesome way, as well as have a current accounts that allows them to spend from their account. And we've got some other uh, products coming out uh, down the line. Fantastic. Well, welcome. Okay, well, with that, let's get into the news. So our first story was reported in Altfi and various other places, and it is that Nova Credit has become the UK's first cross-border credit reference provider. So US-founded Nova Credit has received authorization to become the UK's first cross-border retail credit reference provider. The company, which supplies cross-border credit referencing technology to lenders and financial services providers, such as American Express and HSBC, will now bring its Nova Passport technology to the UK. Without access to past credit history, creditworthy individuals who move to new countries are often automatically declined by lenders, which restricts access to all sorts of credit-based products. And of course, it's really, uh, really frustrating for uh, all those people. A consumer permission credit bureau, Nova Credit, says it's on a mission to accelerate financial inclusion for immigrants globally. So Colin, thank you so much for being uh, here to discuss this news. What does this mean in real terms to be the first cross-border credit reference provider? And is that like the first border that's been crossed, the UK and the US, or are we seeing other borders being crossed with this kind of thing? Yeah, well, thanks again. Happy to, to discuss the news. In short, what it means is that your financial identity is your own, no matter where you choose to live. I think that's the sort of beautifully simple idea at the heart of Nova Credit. When we say that Nova Credit is a cross-border credit reference agency, what we mean is that um, for millions of people who move to the UK every year, they arrive with essentially a blank slate. And when they apply for products and services from businesses that require credit references, require credit history of some kind, they appear to be extremely risky. And from the perspective of the business, there's not enough information to approve or to extend those product services on equitable terms to those individuals. And so what ends up happening is they get overseen, um, they get rejected, they have to work through alternative means to get access to financing or other goods and services. And so Nova Credit addresses that particular challenge by putting a consumer's data in their own hands. So imagine you are a Indian student seeking your PhD in the UK. You might arrive into the UK and apply for, um, you might try to get a telephone and a new device, and at which point you might receive financing for that. You may be applying for a credit card or other kind of personal and secured loan. 
um, you might need to get a flat, in which case they will run a screening check on you. And in each of those instances, you'll encounter a credit system that, again, views you as invisible to it fun- functionally. And, um, you know, in, in so doing, you will have joined the nearly one million people who arrive to the UK every year and encounter this problem over and over and over again. Um, and through our technology, what we allow you to do is, upon your request, fetch your home country credit history and port it with you to the UK so that you can actually provision it to businesses in order to put your best foot forward and from the perspective of the businesses, make a accurate and fair assessment of your actual level of risk. Would I be oversimplifying to suggest it's a sort of form of open finance or open data across borders and that, that by enabling people to bring data from other countries, it's kind of sort of sort of open finance in a way? I think it's the same. It's premised on the same philosophy, which is that a, an individual has a right to his or her own data. Um, no matter where you choose to live. And I think that's a fair analogy. There's some places in which the analogy breaks down, but at its core, a consumer-permissioned workflow is different from the way the domestic credit system works in the same way that you can log into your own bank account and you can see your own bank balances, but open banking gives you the tools to essentially port that data across different environments. Um, Nova Credit's technology does something similar. You have the right to access your home country credit history no matter where you live and our technology allows you to use a similar workflow to transfer that information on a one-time basis to support you in your new endeavors Um, so i think the analogy to open banking is very apt the difference of course is there's no bank account you're logging into so you don't have to log in there's no password credentials required (laughs) as part of it but the uh, for better or for worse, but the fundamental heart of it, which is that the consumer is in control of the data, that is a, that is the same. So you're saying it's a better user experience. Um, all right, uh, but on a practical level, so okay, so somebody, your, your Indian PhD student, um, she's moved to to the UK, and let's say she tries to get a credit card. Now, what has to happen? Let, I don't want to guess you know who she applies for, but I don't know, maybe it's Barclay Card or Capital One or whatever. She applies for this credit card. Historically, they've gone to Experian or Equifax or whatever. How does how does her data get to the credit card issuer? Won't they just go along to Experian and Equifax and say, well, we don't have this person. She clearly wasn't born in Britain. We, she has no credit record in Britain. Uh, no credit card for you. Um, how, do, how does it work practically? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, banks aren't known for their consumer-friendly uh, uh, language, so I, um, I like the way you framed it. <laughs> no credit card for you. Um, yeah, practically speaking, um, that's the way it works today. So historically, that individual applies for a credit card, let's say, and the lender will check Experian, Equifax, whoever their domestic credit provider is. And the response that comes back is that this individual does not exist in our database. And then the lender will have to figure out some kind of rule set to make a determination on how to handle that. And what most of them will do is either decline and say, sorry, no credit card for you, or will potentially route to alternative products, things like secured credit cards. So you can essentially put up a collateral, put up some some money and in exchange, get a kind of charge card. So those are the kinds of workarounds that happen today. What our technology allows is that essentially another option. (laughs) So rather than simply declining or offering a suboptimal product to that consumer, now the lender can offer the consumer the chance to append their foreign credit history to their application. And so we build direct API integrations to home country credit bureaus around the world. And then we, upon request, fetch that information 
standardize it into a UK format so it's familiar to the lender and also compliant for their use in the UK. And then we directly pass it through API to the lender. So the lender has the information in real time and can use that to make a decision in whatever decisioning engine that they use to render their their decision. Amy, let's bring you into this conversation. I think Colin's just given you another API use case um, <laughs> for the project you're working on. But what, what did you think? What do you think of this story? How how commonplace is this is this problem? What do you think? Well, it seems like a huge, huge problem and a huge need that you're solving for. And I kind of can't believe that this hasn't been dealt with before. So I think it's really exciting. And um, from have you found from a lender's perspective that lenders are quite excited by this because surely this opens up a new segment of customers to whom they haven't been able to to lend before and who potentially if in your case of a student coming over to do a phd these are people with earning potential who they do want to lend to and and bring into the financial system yeah i think that's spot on i think from the vantage point of lenders or really any business that uses credit data there's two motivations one is a purely calculated, let's say, business logic, which is simply that there's an opportunity to acquire and approve a population that historically has been overlooked. So if you actually look at the size of that opportunity, there's over 800,000 immigrants who arrive, long-term immigrants, so people working and studying on multi-year visas, arrive into the UK every year. There's about 700,000 people in the UK who turn 18 every year. So there's more people arriving into the UK every year on long-term visas, living, working, studying in the UK than are actually um, coming of age. And so if you're a lender and you're, and you're thinking about how to win market share, you can either compete with in the same pool and population that every other lender is competing for in the UK, which is a which is a relatively small share, or you can move into what is a relatively white space opportunity, an underserved segment that's credit active, that's credit hungry, um, and that needs uh, needs some better product and services, and that's just the business decision. I think on business alone, um, there's a there's a high ROI opportunity for businesses. There's also the matter of fulfilling brand promise and treating customers fairly. As you may be aware, the Financial Conduct Authority is very clear that their expectation, in particular among lenders, is that lenders are taking proactive steps to ensure that they're treating customers fairly. And I think. Our technology is one way in which businesses can ensure they're actually making decisions in a even-handed way that treats people that really treats people um, on the basis of the full amount of information that's available in that person and doesn't sort of um, on the basis of the fact that someone's an immigrant um, exclude them. Maybe one last quick question on this. On this, um, why did you pick the UK? I mean, there are plenty of countries that uh, are, are welcoming to Im- immigrants and have lots of immigrant workers. There are plenty of economies that are bigger than the UK's. Um, why did you Why did you pick the UK as the sort of? I, th- I think this is the, the sort of first market you've expanded into. Yeah, it's um, it's the UK is a dynamic economy that attracts a lot of new. We call them new to country consumers, newcomers. Um, it's actually the second market we've expanded into. So our business was built in 2016 was when we founded. We integrate with more than 20 credit bureaus around the world. And for most of our company's history, we were delivering credit history into the United States to businesses in the U.S. Last May, we launched our service in Singapore. So now businesses in Singapore can retrieve data from those outbound countries and use it in the case of Singapore. And now we're bringing the service to the U.K. this year. And, you know, maybe to... to kind of fundamentally answer your question, the UK is 
the sixth largest economy in the world, but more than that, it is a dynamic place. It is a place that is an aspirational place that people choose to come and study and work from all over the world. Um, it is a pluralistic democracy that continues to have unparalleled higher education, um, uh, educational and, and work opportunities for migrants around the world. And so when you actually do the math of looking at what are the um, the largest magnitude and the largest percentage of population coming from overseas, the UK is actually um, in the top five countries in the world in terms of uh, number and concentration of new to country consumers. Well, really, really interesting news, uh, Colin. I wish you every success. I think you're going to make a big difference to the lives of lots of people, which is exactly uh, the kind of fintech uh, impact that we love to see is fintechs making a real difference to people's lives. So we're going to watch uh, what comes up next. For those of you listening, uh, if you're interested in more on sort of linking up previously fragmented financial systems, a bit like Nova Credit is doing, you should definitely check out the first episode of a new strand of Fintech Insider called Fintech Insider Focus. In the inaugural episode, David Breer looks to answer the question, can open finance ever be truly global with experts from Visa, MX and Wise? Search for Fintech Insider Focus wherever you got this podcast. I think I know what Colin's answer to that question would be, but we're going to move on to the next story. All right. Our next story is that an Aramco-backed fintech has opened a bank branch in London to help Muslims invest. And this was reported by CNBC and various other media. So an investing platform backed by the Saudi oil giant Saudi Aramco and the French soccer star Paul Pogba is launching a novel proposition in the UK, a physical branch and bank accounts backed by gold. New York-based Wahed, which describes itself as a halal investing platform, has opened a branch in the UK in a bid to target the country's 3.9 million Muslims with a Sharia-compliant investment management and advice service. Wahed is also introducing a debit card that lets users deposit funds with an exchange-traded commodity that tracks the price of gold, meaning they can effectively pay for everyday goods via gold. Uma, there's lots of news to unpack here. Firstly, congratulations. Why was this the right time to bring Wahed to the UK? I mean, Wahed's been in the UK for a number of years. Uh, we've just released a new product. Um, we started in the US, but the UK for us was uh, an important, is a key market because of its history, uh, its, its relationship with the financial services industry, uh, its hub for innovation, and also the fact that it's, it's, it's a great time zone. So if you see that we have over 350,000 customers globally, a huge number in the Far East, UK and the US, uh, and increasingly globally, the UK sits kind of perfectly well in the middle. Um, it's got that culture of innovation as well. And also because of its relationship with, I guess, understanding the social needs of, of clients and people, when we talk about Islamic finance and we talk about Sharia compliant products, people understand it better. It, it's got a lovely balance here. And it's got and it's got a lovely regulatory framework. This is the other important thing. It's got a mature regulatory framework that enables innovation. But we've got listeners sort of at all stages in their sort of industry journey, people who've been in financial services and fintech for years and people who, you know, just joined the industry. Can you give uh, listeners a very quick summary of Islamic finance and why is it different to um, 
I, I suppose ordinary finance or <laughs> conventional, conventional finance. Yeah, conventional finance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No problem at all. So Islamic finance, um, actually, it's just got a few principles. One of them is that it operates a screen, like an ethical screen. Uh, people who are familiar with ESG investing or impact investing will perhaps understand a green screen. So there's a, a Sharia compliance screen, which screens out any types of investment that has uh, any type of activity which is considered detrimental to society, as well as those which are specifically uh, kind of referenced through uh, Islamic theology. So, for example, we can't invest in pornography, in arms, in gambling, in alcohol, uh, in drugs testing and so on. These are seen as being unethical. Uh, alongside that, we can't invest in financial institutions because the underlying activity of financial institutions is anchored or weighed in uh, interest. And interest is a massive no-no uh, within Islamic theology. Uh, and as actually a little bit wider than that, the history of why interest is forbidden is a longer discussion, but interest is a massive no-no. Uh, what Islamic finance calls to is equitable investing versus debt financing. So when we're investing on talking about Sharia compliant uh, uh, finance, it's simply screening out uh, any detrimental types of activity, making sure that there's no interest involved and, and ensuring also there's, um, that the company isn't too heavily geared. So you can't have more than 33% debt in the company. Now, this is quite interesting because actually it means that these companies aren't based on debt so they can uh, withstand kind of economic downturns a lot better. And that's it. It's as simple as that. Everything else is allowed. And I mean, th those ethical principles um, are probably attractive to, to, to lots of people all around the world who, who, who are not mus Muslims. Uh, are you finding you're getting any interest from, from non-Muslim customers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, the labels are the labels, but when you talk about the principles, when you talk about investing in companies that aren't involved in arms or pornography or gambling-based products, then people understand that and they don't want their money, their hard-earned money, being used to kind of further these types of activities within society. So the non-Muslim uh, kind of response is, it has been absolutely phenomenal. One of the things in this story that's kind of raised a couple of eyebrows is that you've opened a bank branch. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to bring over you in in a moment, but the last question directly to you is, is why a bank branch? There'll be a, a Quite a few listeners listening to that thinking, I thought bank branches were sort of closing down, particularly in the UK. Why a bank branch? So bank branches are closing down. And I guess calling it a bank branch is probably not doing it justice. It's more of a uh, an open door hybrid working space. And what we mean by that is that our staff, they'll be working there, but we wanted to have an open door policy where potential clients, anybody who had any questions could come in and engage with us. Um, the levels of financial literacy um, in, in Muslim communities in the UK is very low because uh, they're normally in areas of high deprivation. And so as part of what we're doing is actually taking people on a journey. Like I've explained what Sharia compliant is here, there's lots of other people who don't actually understand it. So we wanted a space where we could educate, inform people and allow people to come in and engage with us. And, and we needed an office for our staff anyway. So we've designed it. It looks much more like an Apple store than a bank branch, so to speak. So they'll be working there anyway. If somebody wants to come in and engage, we've got the space. Got it. Hybrid working space definitely sounds much more 2023 than uh, yeah. bank <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Amy, what did you what do you think of um, you know the, the proposition and the, the gold bank debit card and so on? What did you think of this? 
Yeah, I think um, just to to continue on the topic of the bank branch, now that you've explained it, I really like the idea that it's going to be used as a space for financial education and actually to spread the word about Islamic finance, explain to people what it means and give them the opportunity to ask questions. And I think particularly because quite a large part of your proposition is all around investments and giving people that opportunity to understand how they can invest and for it still to be Sharia compliant. Um, I think that's really exciting. One of the other really interesting links here is uh, the celebrity endorsement from um, Paul Pogba, uh, who's obviously very famous, very successful, and so on. We've seen some celebrity endorsements of fintech that haven't gone so well (laughs) in in different areas. Um, How important is uh, sort of his involvement? Um, is Is he an investor in the business as well, or is he just a sort of brand ambassador? No, he's actually an investor. We went originally to speak to him to ask him to be a brand ambassador. But when he understood what we were about and the values and the principles behind what we were doing, he said, I want to be a shareholder as well. So he actually <laughs> ended up becoming a shareholder and he really believes in what we're doing. I think his own journey is is phenomenal, one where he came through financial hardship and now he's been kind of blessed with wealth. What he does with that wealth, he's very discerning about how he uses that wealth. He wants to pay something forward. So there was a natural alignment there. And for us, it was good because he really understood the product. He understood where we were going as a as a company. Um, and he also represents, I guess, fintech in some ways. It's young, it's trendy. Uh, he's online. He's much bigger than a football player, so to speak. Um, people know him for his social media presence. So there was a lot of synergies there that worked for us and for him. Colin, what's your what's your perspective on um, sort of celebrity endorsements of, of fintech? I don't I don't know whether you have a celebrity backer of Nova Credit. Um, <laughs> do you think this makes sense? Uh, I I think I well I like the way Umer put it, which is I think that celebrity for celebrity's sake is maybe um, not a smart move. But I think um, finding alignment between um, values it can be really powerful. So Nova Credit, we do have a couple of um, celebrity investors in our uh, investor set as well. Um, but it has, it, you know, in our case, it has nothing to do necessarily with them um, promoting our brand. It has everything to do with them typically being immigrants themselves and understanding the challenges that one faces when transferring between new countries and wanting to try to invest in the infrastructure to make that journey a little bit easier. So um, yeah, I think it. I think it can be quite sensible when done well. Uma, one last question f- f- for you around um, other other markets in Europe. I mean, the UK has has quite a large um, Muslim population. That I suspect there are other European countries that have got similarly large or larger populations. I mean, obviously Turkey, but um, a- elsewhere in Europe. Um, are there other markets you're you're thinking about or have in mind? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we already have regulated entities in South Africa, Indonesia. These are huge populations. Indonesia is a huge population. It's the most populous Muslim country in the world. And so being able to provide these types of products, which are aligned to their values, which is digitally delivered, um, it's actual real financial inclusion. Um, I mean, we're living in a digital age now. The other really important thing is that Muslims make up globally the kind of youngest age demographic. So you've got a huge number of, of young Muslims who are, who are growing up. They're much more digitally connected. They have access to all the information. I mean, they'll have multiple phones, even if they don't have a bank account. And they want to do well with their money. So, yeah, this is why it's, um, it's coming at an opportune time. But for us, we're definitely looking at South Africa, Indonesia as key markets for us. 
Fantastic. Well, we wish you every success. And, you know, I think the, the message is huge market that hasn't had the products available to some extent. So every success to you. For listeners, if you're interested in more on Islamic finance, um, have a listen to episode 625 of Fintech Insider Insights, where Ross Gallagher was joined by guests from Wehead, uh, Kestrel and Bank Al Jazeera um, to talk about Islamic finance. Okay, well, we're just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as... On ramping. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. This was reported in the Wall Street Journal, which is that US banks are planning a payment wallet to compete with PayPal and Apple Pay. America's biggest banks are teaming up to take on Apple and PayPal with a digital wallet linked to customers' debit and credit cards. Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase, and Bank of America are among the seven lenders backing the wallet, which will be run by Early Warning Services, which is the bank-owned venture behind the P2P payment service Zelle. The move is designed to help banks take on third-party players such as PayPal and Apple. Apple has been making a push into the banking sector through its wallet, credit card, and plans for a buy-now-pay-later product. So I saw this and had a bit of a sense of deja vu. It's like it's 2010 all over again when you had um, American mobile operators introducing a wallet, you had American merchants trying to introduce a digital wallet. Um, Is this a decade or even 13 years too late, Amy? I just don't really understand how it could possibly challenge the likes of Apple and PayPal. I mean, the reason why people use a digital wallet is convenience and whether the banks can actually come up with something that's more convenient than an Apple or or a PayPal product is very questionable. I mean, PayPal, as an example... That's just one of the most convenient logging with your email address. We use it all the time in competitive benchmarking projects as just the best-in-class example of a seamless checkout and seamless login way to pay. So, yeah, I'd be surprised if they're able to come up with something that could beat those um, uh, existing players. I'm going to mildly disagree with you on PayPal because I've been locked out of my PayPal account for about two years because every time they send me a text message, it doesn't arrive and I can't authenticate my account. However, I suspect I'm, you know, one in a thousand customers. It's one of those ones where you have a problem and you Google it and you find all these other customers all around the world have <laughs> the same problem, but you still can't solve it because you can't log in to contact their customer services. Anyway, um, Colin, uh, you're obviously very familiar with the States and I suspect American. Um, what's your perspective on this uh, story? Do you think this is going to be a big success um, or a damn squib? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, in typical American fashion, I, I won't uh, hold any punches back. I mean, I, I tend to agree with Amy. I really struggle to see how it is that this offering that's contemplated is going to be differentiated in any way that creates real value for consumers who are ultimately the judges of how much value it creates. What I found most interesting about this story is who is behind it, actually. Early warning systems is not a 
brand uh, name, household name, but they, you know, they're actually a sort of coalition, a joint venture between some of the largest banks in the U.S., Bank of America, Truist, Cap One, Chase, PNC, U.S. Bank, and Wells. And they're sort of um, been around since the 1990s, actually. They first started with like checking deposits to help reduce fraud and set up some products around that. They moved in in the 2000s into like helping with fraud controls and identity risk management around new account opening. And then it was in the teens that they, I think, hit their stride with starting to move into mobile and then having like Zelle, which has the thing that they're most well known for. But um, but I think the reality is in, in when it comes to financial technology, like the DNA of your, your business model is destiny in a lot of ways. And I think early warning systems is really a vehicle for banks to play catch up (laughs) to fintech trends. And so to me, this move feels reactionary. It feels like a move out of fear that a lot of banks have, which is very real around stemming the tide of customer attrition, especially millennials and Gen Zs who are digitally native and don't want to log into a web portal with a bank, but want to use um, a digital, a a mobile wallet for a hundred percent of their transactions. And so um, I think it is maybe a necessary move. It was going to happen sooner or later, um, but I really struggle to see how they're going to differentiate in any meaningful way. Amy gave the example of PayPal. Uh, um, Apple is so seamless. Um, they have, you know, down to the smallest friction points they shave off to make it as easy as possible to onboard and use. Um, and I don't, uh, I start, you know, when I was reading a little bit about the solution, it sounds like they have not yet worked out the UX design. Um, and in theory, early warning systems is well positioned to onboard because they already have access to your card information at their, at their shareholder banks. Um, but again, in practice, I, I don't think we see a lot of uh, friction and um, lack of convenience from the existing solutions. And so it will be a real, it'll be interesting to watch, but it'll be a real challenge for them to overcome. Umar, I'd, I'd love to bring you in. I was I was loving what you were saying earlier about, you know, understanding particularly younger Muslims and understanding their needs and how they're served and so on. When you look at this, do you see this as, as the banks trying to serve customers better or is this maybe, you know, there are other motivations here? What, what, what did you think? Um, <laughs> I don't know, excuse the example, but it, it feels a little bit like, you know, that elderly relative who just thinks they're still young and they're not giving up. So, you know, um, the banks I, <laughs> I work in. <laughs> That's harsh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But, but you understand, like, you know, um, they've traditionally had lots of money and they've made their money from kind of financial products. And, and they are scared. I know that fintech, when they came across these companies, they were disrupting and they had a, a laser focus, digital first. Banks aren't designed like that. And they think they can throw money at a problem to solve it. There's no real heart in the problem. And, and what Colin said is so true. They're trying to play catch up. There's a lack of sincerity, really. They haven't started with a problem to try and solve it. If we see what Apple Pay and, and Google Pay, etc., have done, what the banks are trying to do is just catch up and, and copy and imitate. And they don't have the infrastructure within most of these organizations to be able to do that. There's a certain amount of unwinding that's required from their own systems to then digitally layer on these products versus uh, fintechs or you know other types of startups which are nimble they've only been focused on one area and they can deliver on that so um yeah i think they need to do it but um i'm not going to hold my breath in terms of how well it's going to be delivered i think there's going to be huge challenges and the reason that that they're doing it 
Um, one of the thank you. One of the angles I'm really interested in here is the, is the regulatory one, right? So, how do regulators look at this? Because um, Colin and Amy, you're both making this point about how Apple Pay is sort of seamless experience, and part of the way Apple has done that is, of course, it's using the hardware, and it's installing. You know, the wallet is right there on your your, your home screen or whatever. Um, so it's already there. It's easy to load your cards on and so on. It is this wonderful seamless experience, but then. It's very hard for anyone else to install something on the phone and use the hardware in the same way. So if you look at it as a regulator, you could say, well, is is Apple sort of abusing its position a bit like Microsoft got in trouble for back in the 1990s? I'm showing my age here, you know, with the Internet Explorer and so on, you know, exploiting its hardware system. Or do the regulators look at it and say, hang on a minute, we've got all the big American banks colluding with each other. What do you think the regulators, you know, who are looking at this? I mean, obviously, it's at this moment. It doesn't really matter. It's tiny. It doesn't have. Isn't not doing anything. But is there a regulatory issue at some point along the line here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sort of, the question is sort of um, who is the monopolist, right? <laughs> yeah, Both exactly. parties have a have a claim. In the one hand, you've got Apple that controls the hardware device and therefore is at a structural advantage to always porting people to use their payment wallet. On the other hand, you've got early warning systems, which is a joint venture, which is maybe a polite way of saying a way of colluding amongst the top banks in the U.S. that's trying to cobble together a digital wallet to make it um, such that, you know, you maybe perhaps have to go through their application. I, I think it's an interesting time for U.S. regulators. I mean, historically, um, the way U.S. regulators look at monopoly power is through the lens of consumer surplus. So they sort of ask the question of, are consumers net benef- better off or worse off by virtue of whatever behavior they're examining? And so I think you would be, at least in the way it's currently incarnated, I don't think Apple Pay, um, you know, uh, trips up that test very much. I think mostly it benefits consumers. Of course, Apple is a bit in the crosshairs of regulators for other reasons related to payments, related to their in-app store payments, which is a related but different story. And I I suspect that might be um, uh, a target that actually does uh, come to fruition um, in the next uh, few years. Um, and then on the other hand, I think that, you know, it, it really, a lot depends on the execution of early warning systems on this. If banks get together and try to build a digital wallet, a lot hinges on the how they do it, how it works and operates. And I think it's just not, it's a little too early to say. Amy, I mean, if we, if we've seen examples of banks working together successfully to bring in new things in other markets or, sorry, you were going to come in with a different point, so come in. No, that I was going to come in to say, um, it can work. And the best example that I can think of is Swish in the Nordics, whereby actually um, I think it's now surpassed card as the most preferred payment method online amongst 18 to 40-year-olds. And mobile payments in the Nordics are huge. And actually Swish is an example of a collaboration between um, Swedish banks to deliver a mobile payment solution that's actually bank operated rather than private. So, or mobile pay in Denmark is similarly successful. Yeah. And what's the key to that? They've made it quicker, easier for customers in some way. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's been established. So I think it. So it was launched in 2012. So potentially it got in there and became sticky with customers before some of these other solutions were around. So the answer is do this 10 years ago. (laughs) 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 All right. I think the three of you are sort of saying this is unlikely to succeed. Do we we see any way that this can take off? So very quickly, um, 
do, do any of the three of you see a quick, you know, do you see a way this could take off? The, the best counterpoint, the best, the best uh, devil's advocate position is to point to Zelle, I think, which was similarly a late-to-the-game peer-to-peer payments tool built by the same actor here, early warning system, uh, launched, I think, 2017, so a good decade after um, the peer-to-peer payment systems of, of uh, the likes of PayPal, Venmo, um, Cash App were really in the market, and nonetheless does a massive volume of peer-to-peer payment transfers. Now, it may not have the same brand affiliation with consumers, but nonetheless, it's uh, the actual dollars uh, that it transfers on an annual basis is, is like a material share of the payments volume um, in the U.S. And so I think there's a there is a uh, analogous product. This is a little different, in my opinion, because a digital wallet is more requires consumers to integrate that into their daily lives mm-hmm, in a way mm-hmm. that like the Zelle payment system does not. Um, so I think there's a difference that's important, um, and that's why I was stressing kind of execution risk. But nonetheless, I think I think you can even point to early warning systems. I mean, they have had they have had maybe not a smashing brand, well known success in the form of Zelle that is like Swish or like Pix in Brazil, which are maybe more successful versions. But nonetheless, it's not doomed for failure. Maybe that's the best counter argument. Got it. Got it. Well, maybe yeah, maybe there's a maybe there's a group of customers they can find a you know um, Android users, for example, um, sure. <laughs> either groups of customers that they can find a, a good opportunity with. All right, um, I'm going to wrap it up because we need to move on to our next story. Um, okay, so our next story is an interesting one. Brazil and Argentina are discussing a common currency, according to Reuters. So Brazil and Argentina are aiming for greater economic integration, including the development of a common currency. This is according to a joint article penned by the new Brazilian president, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, known as Lula, and the Argentine lean leader, Alberto Fernandes. The pair said they had decided to advance discussions on a common South American currency that can be used for both financial and commercial flows, reducing cost operations and our external vulnerability, in an article that was published on the Argentine website Perfil. The plan, which is set to be discussed at a summit in Buenos Aires this week, will focus on how a new currency, which Brazil suggests calling the SUR, South, could boost regional trade and reduce reliance on the US dollar. So for a view on, uh, from a Brazilian on this, to start with, we asked 11FS's Global Strategy Director of Crypto, Maurizio Magaldi, for his thoughts on the potential currency union and how stablecoins might fit into this picture. The idea of having a common currency between two countries or more in South America is not exactly indicating that they are going to move either to a Bitcoin-based transaction like Brian Armstrong of Coinbase alluded to, nor that they are going to establish a common stable coin between the two countries. The concept that they're exploring at the moment, which in my opinion is much to just create headlines at this stage, is a common currency between the countries, which means that between Brazil, Argentina, and potentially other South American countries, they would go and find a common currency would that would probably be a basket of the national currencies in the region, and that would be used for uh, the exchange and the commerce between that economic uh, zone. So it's a stable coin would imply that a Brazil real would be issued as a stable coin to be used in the region, or an Argentinian peso would be issued as a stable coin to be used in the region. Both cases could also be true. But the conversations right now are more towards how can we reduce the reliance on the uh, U.S. dollar, which is, it seems to be a trend because 
Um, apparently, we're seeing that the dollar domination as the international currency for commerce is starting to diminish, and we'll see how that evolves when stable coins that aren't dollar uh, start to perform uh, better than the ones that are packed to the dollar. So what does this mean for financial services players in sort of Brazil and Argentina? So Umar, as, as someone who works in a, a business that's operating in a number of countries and is considering ex- expanding into, into further countries, um, is it helpful to you if if countries share a currency, so you know, let's say you start trying to offer services to, to Muslims across European countries, does it does it make a difference? Is it easier if 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 they've got a shared currency? So, I mean, there's two ways I could tackle this. One is by talking about the economics as it is in terms of trade and the benefits received by um, not having. Uh, you know, FX disparity, foreign exchange disparity. From our perspective, I mean, we've just launched a a current account where your money is linked to physical gold. And one of the reasons that we did this is that there's stability, that there's um, less variables in terms of how you pay for things, and you have something physical there, as money used to be historically. And we would want this in all of our markets. And it's based on everyone understands the rate of gold. It's not necessarily dictated to by a single entity or a single jurisdiction. Um, and, and so I find it amazing from that point of view, if there's going to be a currency that's genuine, that's backed by something physical, a genuine service or commodity, as opposed to fiat currency, um, then where we completely support it. So that's a there's a philosophical discussion around that part of it. But from a practical perspective, having a shared currency, for sure, you can see how it facilitates uh, ease of trade. You look at um, imports and exports between the, those countries. If they're now going to be able to um, exchange in the same rate, it makes things a lot easier. And then freedom of travel, um, being able to then go and benefit from enjoying what other countries have to offer. All of these things make it a lot easier. FX trading by itself actually uh, is a means of weakening a currency if it's not managed properly. And we've seen this as well, where you'd, you'd find certain bad players would use FX arbitrage as an opportunity to destabilize countries. And so anything that makes the whole financial ecosystem stabler, better, more fair, we would completely support. Thank you. Colin, your, your business is all about helping people move across borders and helping people you know, thrive in, in new markets. Um, what, was, what was your take on this story? Do you, do you see this as a positive? Would this make you know, credit rating easier or do you, think it's, do you think it's a positive more widely? Yeah, I, my interpretation of this, this story is that it's mostly um, political theater. <laughs> Sorry, um, <laughs> if that's too blunt. Um, but I think that's a bit the reality of what we're seeing here. I think in principle, the reason why having a common currency could be beneficial is that it makes it easier for businesses in one country to buy and sell goods from consumers or businesses in the other country. And so in theory, you get access to a bigger market. You expand your market and you can do more collective bargaining as a trade block. This is what the EU very famously does. It it, uh, collates together all the different economies and then it can set policies that pertain to all of them. But of course, it's, it doesn't come as a free lunch, right? You give up your ability to determine your national monetary policy. Um, 
In fact, I, I noticed that this idea had been discussed previously by Brazil in 2019 by politicians there. It was vetoed by the um, Central Bank of Brazil at that point in time. And if you look at if you look at kind of the motivation, the stated motivation from from the Brazilian president, it's it has it's actually nothing about ease of trade or growing markets or collective bargaining power. It's about reducing reliance on the U.S. dollar. Um, and I think that's the heart of the motivation here is a desire to reduce reliance on the U.S. dollar as a symbol um, and perhaps as some pragmatic effects, too. But I think, you know, we have to remember that um, politicians operate in a political context and Lula just won a very um, you know, narrowly won election where there's a lot of um, um, ideological things at stake. And so I suspect that what's going on here is more about um, uh, saber rattling than it is about trying to achieve a specific economic outcome. Indeed, I think that's exactly right. That we um, we recorded a, a, a FinTech Insider Insights episode um, a few a few weeks back, shortly after the change of government in, in, in oh no, I think it was shortly before the change of government in Brazil. But we were talking about how changes in government can affect fintechs, and we, we had various guests from Spiralem and Innovate Finance and the Chamber of Progress on that. So it's episode six eight one where we talked about precisely precisely that. But I think your your summary of political theatre is is probably spot on. Thank you. All right, let's move on to Big Click Energy, which is the short uh, section of the show where we'll have a quick fire roundup of a few more clickworthy news stories from this week. Amy, do you want to get us started? Yes, so story this week, um, FinTech Keezy raises three million pounds to help first-time buyers get a leg up on the property ladder. London's Keezy has raised £3 million in a seed funding round that's aimed at helping the startup accelerate its purchases of homes and the development of its technology platform. The end goal for Keezy is to enable more key workers and young professionals to join the property ladder for the first time. Keezy offers to acquire the home chosen by its customers and leases it to them at a fixed rent for three to seven years. In doing so, these customers are able to establish a credit history to facilitate a future mortgage application, while up to 25% of their rent is converted to lower the locked-in buyback price of the property. Customers also have the right to buy the home at the original total cost minus the converted rent that's accumulated. In my view, there's so much potential here for fintechs to help the underserved, um, and Keezy's the latest one to enter the prop tech space. Um, with rising mortgage rates coinciding with the end of um, the UK government's help to buy scheme, um, I think they're really in the right place at the right time. And this could be quite an exciting new idea that really does um, help those people that are underserved when it comes to buying property. Thank you. Such an interesting market. We, we're about to publish a new report on uh, home buying in, in, a, in a couple of weeks. So I'm super interested in this market. All right. Uh, the next story is that India's phone peak has topped a $12 billion valuation in new funding. This was reported in TechCrunch. So PhonePay's valuation has more than doubled to more than $12 billion US dollars in a new funding round as the Indian fintech readies for life without its parent firm Flipkart. The Bengaluru Bangalore headquartered startup said it had raised a $350 million uh, round and anticipates raising up to another $650 million as part of the round. The company has not assigned a name to the funding round but said it was valued at $12 billion. Uh, Walmart, which is a majority investor in PhonePay, is expected to participate in the current funding round, according to a source familiar with the matter. 
Well, this is such an interesting market. India is in this huge battle for digital wallets, um, the kind of battle that the American banks want to be part of, where PhonePay is challenging um, Paytm. Uh, this valuation makes uh, PhonePay three times more valuable than Paytm. Those two apps are two of the most downloaded finance apps in the world last year. Um, you know, there's a lot of Indians. Uh, it's a big country. Um, but still, you know, so there's a massive battle going on. Like who's going to control how Indians um, pay for things? So really, really interesting dynamic. Paytm pay has been the leader for a long time, but PhonePay has really come through strongly. Um, so a lot at stake. Really interesting to see investors putting money in um, because if you can control how people spend, you have a huge opportunity to understand where their money is going, understand who those people are and so on. So such an interesting market, such a big market. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of the show. This week, we are opening the mailbag and looking at some of the questions put out by our social media manager, Tom, to the 11FS and Fintech Insider audiences and asking our panel for their takes. So, firstly, what role do you think is crucial to the success of a fintech but is often not given attention? And Hirola Wohl writes, all roles are important, but product marketing team is very important. Um, let's see, who wants to answer that question? Has anyone got a different answer? And what's the role that's crucial to the success of the fintech? And I've got, well, Amy's putting her hand up, but I've got two, we've got two fintechs on the line. I think we ought to go to one of them. Go let's go to Colin. Colin. <laughs> Uh, for, for me, I would I would say sales actually, and specifically, you know, enterprise sales um, in particular for for B two B fintechs. Um, sales tends to not get a lot of uh, glamour. It's not always seen as the um, you know most intellectual kind of activity. But I, I will say, in my experience, it requires a degree of discipline and mental and emotional fortitude um, that are really um, undervalued. Um, and it also tends to be one of the loneliest jobs. So shout out to all the uh, the salespeople out there. Thank you. All right. So next question is, what was the first thing that sparked your interest in fintech? And I'm going to read out the answer from Tate Hackett, who writes, when I was 15, I provided a subprime mortgage without knowing much of anything. A year later, I got a check back with interest and I was hooked. All I wanted to do was figure out a way to give as many people money as possible. Well, lucky Tate having plenty of money to, <laughs> to, to give out. Um, Uma or Amy, uh, what was the first thing that sparked your interest in fintech? Which one of you wants to go for it? I'm happy to go for it. I mean, fintech for me, I, my background is in conventional banking and I've worked for some of the largest global banks. And why I pivoted into fintech was the ability to actually make a change. And I know that sounds uh, perhaps, um, <laughs> you know, we've heard it quite often, but Digital enablement, the technology part of fintech, finance we know is a, a change enabler, uh, getting people out of poverty, out of difficulty, helping people ra raise themselves socially. Um, but technology is what enables it. And that ability to connect and change people's lives was what did it for me. And working for an organization that's nimble, that you can do things quickly from idea to delivery, it can be a very short span. And so working for an organization like that was uh, was a key driver for me. And, and fintechs are like that. They they look at a problem and they see how can we solve that problem in the best way possible. And because it's often a limited budget, you don't have the luxury of wasting resources, you know, and you'll find it's a stressful environment, but actually you see the rewards a lot quicker 
than you would in a, in a larger financial institution. Great answer. All right. Well, this third question is obviously going to go to, to, to you, Amy, um, which is, if you could hire any fictional character for your startup, who would you hire and why? And John P. Brown has written in an, with an answer that Colin would like, and he said, Bugs Bunny for sales. Um, but how about you, Amy? I reckon Tigger would be very good for office morale. <laughs> Just <laughs> keeping everyone going. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's uh, new show. Thank you so much um, to today's guests. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Amy? LinkedIn for me, Amy Gavin. Colin? Also LinkedIn. You can find me at Colin Galster. And Uma? Why change something that's successful? LinkedIn also, and Umar Suleiman. All right. <laughs> and as for me, you can find out uh, more about me, which, well, that's very dull. Uh, you can find out more about what I'm up to at 11fs.com or uh, follow me on LinkedIn at Benjamin Ensor. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we couldn't have got to 700 episodes without your support. Uh, it's a fantastic achievement. Thank you so much. Well done to anyone who's listened to all 700. I doubt there's anyone apart from David Breer, but who knows? Maybe. Um, well done, and thank you. Please... Do join the conversation, um, put up some questions for us, email us at podcasts at uh, 11fs.com or search for us on social media. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to our, our amazing guests and goodbye. Goodbye.